Berlin, Germany, April 30th, 1945. Fascist dictator, war criminal, and imperial idealist Adolf Hitler retreats into his private bunker underneath the city as it burns. Soviet troops from the Red Army are storming the streets. The German legislative building, the Reichstag, is under siege by staggering numbers of Russians and will fall within 48 hours, despite fierce German resistance. The Allies have taken France in the west, Italy in the south, ousted the Axis from North Africa, crushed Hitler's armies in the east, and crippled his war machine. Now, he received word that his Japanese allies in the east were on the run on all fronts in the Pacific. With only his most trusted advisors, Hitler prepared to carry out his last act of defiance toward the Allies. He raised a loaded pistol to his head and said goodbye to what was, only four years before, his glorious Nazi empire. And as he pulled the trigger, he had only one thought. How could it have all gone so wrong? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I'm Tanner, and as always, I'll be talking about stuff that happened. Today, we are capping off our coverage of the Second World War, the greatest conflict in human history. We're going to finish it off today, and we've got a whole lot to cover. We're looking at well over an hour of content today that you're going to see from this podcast. This is a lot, and obviously, uh, I've been working on this episode for a long time, months at a time. I can't even remember when I started writing the script for this episode, but it, it's just been such a long time coming and such a process. If I had known how much work this episode was going to be, I would have broken it into several episodes, but because I was already in too deep by the time I realized how much I was putting into one episode, I decided just to finish it off and deliver it as it is. Thank you all for joining me today. Not only today, but if, if you've been listening to this series, the Conflict of Nations series, this is 10 episodes. 10 episodes of the Conflict of Nations series, something that I initially expected to have maybe four, maybe five. We're at 10. And honestly, I'm probably going to have to cut the series short before I do the amount of coverage that I wanted to. I wanted to get all the way to the Cold War, but there's just too much. The, the end of the Cold War, but there's just so much. So I will probably do one episode after this that discuss, discusses the aftermath of World War II and what it led to in the, in the wider developed world and the undeveloped world. And then uh, we're going to move on from the Conflict of Nations series. Thank you all for joining me this far. Remember, if you enjoy the podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Drop me a five-star review. Leave me something nice to read. Let me know why you enjoy the podcast and why it's important to you. It gives me the encouragement to keep delivering episodes. And it's just nice to hear that people enjoy what I'm trying to put out here. All right. Now, without further ado, let's continue on with the end of World War II. By early December of 1941, the situation for the Western Alliance formed to counter the Axis powers of Germany, Japan, Italy, Bulgaria, and several other smaller states was dire. Offensives by Italy and Germany had crushed the resistance of almost all of mainland Europe, claiming France, Denmark, Norway, Poland, Yugoslavia, Romania, Greece, and most of Western Russia. The French government was in exile, and the French army had been scattered forming little more than pockets of resistance from within the country and being stranded at their various international posts. 
The Soviet Red Army had been routed on almost all fronts and was in a disorganized retreat across Russia. London was being bombed day and night. And the British military did not have the manpower to mount any sort of effective offensive on the European continent. In the east, the Chinese military had been shattered by the Japanese invasion and fragmented into two factions, the Nationalists and the Communists. Though they'd put aside their differences to fight off the Japanese invasion force, in theory, there were still deep roots of animosity between the two sides, and skirmishes between them were still frequent, even as the war with the Japanese was ongoing, only making it easier for the Japanese to advance. In the meantime, Japan was targeting a number of islands and territories that looked ripe for the taking, including the Philippines, Wake Island, Palau, Papua New Guinea, Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, and beyond. The Allies, in essence, were in full defensive mode. And this is where we find ourselves on the morning of December 7th, 1941. As we stated at the end of Part 9, Japan had overextended itself as an empire. Invading central China had been far more difficult than Emperor Hirohito had anticipated, and with the Allied governments, chiefly the United States and the Soviet Union, supplying the Chinese defenders hold up in the mountainous regions of the country, any further Japanese attacks would be more costly than the Japanese Imperial Army could afford. The Japanese military was also attempting to maintain supply lines with their various holdings in Vietnam, Cambodia, and a number of ports in southeastern China, which were constantly fending off counterattacks from the locals. As the supply lines of Italy and Germany were also fully extended, they had very little left to offer the Japanese, and the Allied forces had halted all trade with the Eastern Empire, leaving Hirohito with limited options. He approached American President Franklin Delano Roosevelt with an offer. If the United States lifted the sanctions and ceased sending aid to China, Japan would not launch any further attacks in Southeast Asia and would pull all of its troops out of Vietnam and Cambodia. FDR proposed a counteroffer. The United States would comply with the agreement, but only if Japan pulled every single soldier out of China, as well as the Southeast territories. This gave Hirohito an ultimatum. Either abandon his grand imperial ambitions in China and elsewhere, or take the resources it needed by force. History would remember what choice he made. But Hirohito knew that the Americans had been gearing up for a fight for years. They were just waiting for someone to throw the first punch. The Japanese were ready and willing to throw the first punch, but they also knew that throwing a real good right hook as your first contact can be the deciding factor in a fight. Knock your opponent off balance, then hit him again. That was their plan. Their first really good right hook came with the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. Most Americans are very familiar with the story of Pearl Harbor, and most of my listeners are from the United States, so I will just briefly give you the story of the battle. Early in the morning of December 7th, 1941, hundreds of Japanese aircraft surprise attacked the United States-held military port at Pearl Harbor on the Hawaiian island of Oahu. Their objective being to cripple the American fleet and then launch their broader attack on the Pacific while the Americans tried to recover. Their attack would be a terrific success. 
Four of the eight American battleships were sunk, and the other four were severely damaged. Nine other American ships were heavily damaged, and the Japanese attackers also targeted the strategic airfields on the island, where most of the American planes were routinely parked outside to be stored. Before they could get off the ground, 188 aircraft were completely destroyed, with 159 others being heavily damaged. The United States started the attack with 390 aircraft. As the Japanese left the area, only 43 of those aircraft were fully operational. As the Japanese fleet turned away from the smoldering ruins of Pearl Harbor, they celebrated the complete success of their mission. The American Pacific Fleet had been completely crippled. Their predictions were that it would take months, if not years, for the United States Navy to return to its previous fighting strength. Within hours, the Japanese had also attacked the United States-held islands of Wake and Guam, both of which fell in a matter of days. Simultaneously, Japanese ships landed on the shores of the Philippines and Japanese forces launched a brutal invasion of the islands. The day after the attack on Pearl Harbor, Japan seized Hong Kong and invaded Thailand. Thailand surrendered before the sun went down and then allied with Japan. The British colony in Penang fell two weeks later, solidifying Japan's beachhead in the Pacific. In January 1942, a month after the attack on Pearl Harbor, Japan launched the next phase in their onslaught in the Pacific, attacking Burma, held by the British, the East Indies, held by the Dutch, and New Guinea, held by Australia and the Netherlands, also attacking the Solomon Islands for good measure. Their campaigns in the Philippines and Malaysia were going swimmingly, as Manila and Kuala Lumpur fell before the month was out. Taking hit after hit, the Allies struggled to put together any kind of effective resistance, with their only success being in Singapore, which too would fall by mid-February, followed by the Indonesian territories of Bali and Timor. By early March, Java and Sumatra had also surrendered to the Japanese, and Japanese bombers were carrying out bombing sorties on Australian cities on the north shores of Australia. Panicked the meager Allied naval forces in the Pacific attempted to rally to confront the Japanese war machine in the Java Sea, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with one of Japan's most powerful fleets, and it ended in yet another disaster. The Allies losing two of their precious cruisers and three destroyers, inflicting minimal losses on the Japanese. Emboldened, the Japanese Navy breached the Indian Ocean and began flying bombing raids on Allied bases across the board, bombing airfields and other objectives wherever they could find them, crippling the Allied defenses. This paved way for Japanese ships to land supplies and reinforcements on the British colony of Burma, now Myanmar, where Japanese troops had invaded after the surrender of Thailand. The fresh troops and supplies bolstered the already crushing Japanese advance, and Allied forces fled in a massive disorganized retreat. Japanese soldiers surrounded a number of pockets of resistance, some of them only surviving due to a Chinese army coming to save the day. Others were not so lucky and were never heard from again. The most stubborn resistance to materialize against the Japanese supernova was found on the islands in the Philippines, where American troops dug in to take the Japanese attackers head on. However, the garrison was comprised largely of poorly equipped National Guard units from the United States who did not have the same regular army training or marine training that the regular army or marines received. To this, 
local Filipino troops in the Army of the Philippines had been incorporated into the United States military formally in late 1941 as tensions between Japan and the U.S. had risen. And before the attack on Pearl Harbor, they comprised more than 30% of the garrison in the Philippines. Though the United States mobilized large numbers of troops to send to the Philippines as Japanese ships neared their shores, the only troops accustomed to the environment were poorly trained and poorly equipped. Also hampered by language barriers between the American troops who spoke English and occasionally a few words of a single Filipino dialect and the 70 dialects of local languages spoken by the Filipino troops. Nevertheless, Allied troops put up stiff resistance to Japanese landing operations in the Philippines, culminating in the Battle of Bataan. Bataan being the province on the largest island in the north of the Philippines called Luzon. For a month, Allied troops carried out a fighting retreat across the big island and surrounding islands before settling into several large pockets of resistance and costing the Japanese valuable time, stagnating their advance in the Pacific. A final defensive line was set up on the southernmost point on the island, where U.S. and Filipino troops were able to hold out until the beginning of April. By that point, the resistance had deeply frustrated the Japanese command, and the Japanese had relocated many of their valuable artillery guns from other fronts to the Philippines in a costly and time-consuming transfer of equipment in order to dislodge the Allied defenders. Using incendiary rounds and bombs on April 3rd, the Japanese turned the forests where the Allies were holed up into infernos in a six-hour bombardment, and then sent their ground troops in to mop up what was left. In six days, the entire Allied line had disintegrated. On April 9th, the final defenders on the island surrendered. Over 70,000 troops fell into the hands of the Japanese, who spent the next three years making their lives a living hell. The final defense of the Philippines took place on the fortress island of Corregidor, where the Allied forces put up one last month of fierce resistance, inflicting costly casualties on the Japanese and costing them even more valuable time before surrendering. But why did I just spend so much time on the Philippines? Well, maybe because the Japanese had initially projected that the Philippines would fall by the end of January, maybe the first week of February. Turns out Corregidor didn't surrender until May 6th, three months after the latest projection, which not only set back the Japanese timetable for its continued advance southward, which theoretically would include the Australian mainland, but also bought the Allies enough time to recuperate their losses from Pearl Harbor and the Battle of the Java Sea to mount an actual formidable counterattack in the sea, which would be seen at Midway, just a month after the fall of the Philippines. To add insult to injury, much of the artillery used in the Philippines was supposed to go to the invasion of New Guinea, and the relocation forced the invading forces to go without their heavy artillery, giving the Australian and American troops there enough time to dig in and make that battle the longest campaign in the Pacific, lasting from early 1942 until the end of the war in 1945, sapping the Japanese military the whole way. Japan had thrown a really good right hook, and landed a few more heavy punches pretty quickly after. But the Allies had finally been able to get their feet underneath them, and get one good punch in the fight. Territories across the Pacific descended into vicious warfare for the next few months. Burma, New Guinea, and China became bloodbaths where neither side could gain the upper hand. 
Japan was suddenly overextended as the battles that had expected to last a few weeks were now lasting months on end, and the Allies were suddenly encouraged by troops from the, from the United States who had taken their sweet time getting into the conflict. Across the board, the Pacific was in a deadlock, with both sides fighting tooth and nail just to hold on. In Europe, things were about the same. Hitler's massive invasion of Russia had been met with stunning success. Beginning in June, by August of 1941, Germany controlled all of modern-day Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Moldova, Belarus, and about half of modern-day Ukraine, and German troops were on Stalin's doorstep in Moscow. In the next year, three battles would begin that would shape the outcome of Hitler's war in the East. First was the Battle of Leningrad, or St. Petersburg. Beginning in September of 1941, Hitler ordered the German Navy to blockade the vital port city in the Baltic Sea to try to starve out the Soviet military. Operation Barbarossa had gone so well that Hitler had German troops close enough to Leningrad to cut off the Soviets to the south, and his newfound alliance with Finland gave him the means to cut them off in the north. Hitler's ultimate goal was to starve the city out, wipe it from the face of the earth literally, and leave no one alive. The siege of Leningrad began. In central Russia, the Germans were advancing on Moscow at the end of 1941, and the Soviets prepared their defenses. Hitler had predicted the city would fall by October of that year, but it wasn't until October that the Germans actually reached the outskirts of the city due to Hitler changing his plans to attack Leningrad in the north. This had bought the Soviets valuable time to fortify their defenses. The attack on Leningrad had also allowed Stalin to reposition his armies. German troops reached Moscow in October, but the Soviets were ready. For three months, Moscow was tip of the spear in the perilous struggle between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, and the fate of the Soviets hung in the balance. Stalin had learned his lesson from the last four months of war with the Germans, and had also watched their strategies in Poland. He had long observed their methods of blitzkrieg, and knew what to do to prepare. The days of waves of soldiers being thrown at an enemy were at an end, and mechanized warfare was the new sheriff in town. So Stalin prepared for it. First and most importantly, Stalin turned the roof of almost every large building in Moscow into an anti-aircraft nest. There's a famous picture of an anti-aircraft team on the roof of the Moskva Hotel, now the Four Seasons Moscow. Stalin had seen how the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, was always sent in first to bomb the enemy into submission, and he would not allow this to happen in his nation's capital. Thousands of anti-aircraft guns were strategically positioned around the city. Then, Stalin directed the population of Moscow to begin digging large trenches and moats in a layered defense against the Germans to hamper the next phase of Hitler's blitzkrieg, the armored attack. After the planes had bombed the enemy into their dugouts, armored units would use a shock and awe tactic to surprise the enemy into a disorganized retreat, as we discussed in an earlier episode. The massive network of trenches Stalin was ordering his people to dig would immobilize many of the German forces. In the weeks leading up to the German attack, residents of Moscow moved up to 3 million cubic tons of earth with no mechanical help. The defenses proved effective against Hitler's war machine. By the first week of November, the German army was experiencing significant logistical problems. The trenches and moats had done their job, and only a third of the German motorized units were still functional. 
The Luftwaffe had suffered so many losses due to Stalin's anti-aircraft guns that they could no longer justify the mass bombing raids that were so effective in the past. And to top it off, winter was coming, and the warm clothing Hitler had sent to the front was being severely delayed due to his overextended supply lines. In mid-November, the Germans attempted to launch another offensive on Moscow, but the Soviets, stretched as thin as they were, were able to hold the Germans off. When December came, Stalin realized that the situation was a stalemate, and at that point, he made his move. Hitler had gotten intelligence that the Soviets were incapable of a counteroffensive because they simply did not have the manpower to mount one, and that was somewhat true. A large number of Soviet troops had been relegated to the Far East in case of a Japanese invasion of the Russian mainland. But by the end of 1941, Stalin saw the debacle that Japanese Emperor Hirohito had gotten himself into by bringing the United States into the war, and he knew Hirohito was not dumb enough to open another front against the Soviets. In a risky move, he called 18 divisions representing over 200,000 troops from the Far East and Siberia to reinforce the garrison in Moscow, and when they arrived, Stalin launched an audacious counteroffensive to dislodge the Germans. The counteroffensive had three prongs and caught the Germans off balance. By December 15th, the German army was in an organized retreat, but was still fighting. Moscow is when Hitler's plans start to disintegrate, and it's important to point out his change in tone here. Up to this point, he was the winner. Every time. He had conquered almost all of mainland Europe and half of Russia. He was the leader of the most battle-hardened army in the world, and that pride went to his head. On December 20th, Hitler held a meeting with his senior officers and gave them a strict set of rules— absolutely no retreat. Defend every inch of ground to the last man. His officers protested, arguing that the cold Russian winter was causing more casualties than the actual battle was, but Hitler just waved him off. He had given his orders. Five generals who had argued against his orders, including his commander-in-chief, were dismissed from the military. The rest reluctantly relayed his orders. But they weren't joking about the cold. The winter of 1941-42 was one of the coldest Russian winters ever recorded, with nightly temperatures falling as low as negative 44 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 42 degrees Celsius. Not only were German soldiers freezing to death every night in the thousands, but German fighter planes and mechanized units were being held on temporary airfields and motor pools and being frozen and unable to start. In contrast, the Soviet soldiers, accustomed to the freezing temperatures and being prepared with warm clothing and friendly civilians, were operating their air force from hangars near Moscow, and their planes stayed operational through the cold winter, dominating the skies from mid-December to mid-January, continuing to beat back the frozen German army. Despite a few reprieves, the German army retreated from mid-December to the second week of January, when the Soviets finally halted their offensive due to stretched supply lines and exhausted troops. Then, Stalin dug in to prepare for his next move. The Germans pulled back from the Soviet capital city. The Battle of Moscow was over. 
It was Hitler's first major defeat, and he didn't take it very well. In addition to firing his commander-in-chief, he replaced most of his top advisors with fiercely loyal Nazi party members who had little to no combat experience, and reorganized the Wehrmacht, comprising of the German army, navy, and air force, to be put directly under his personal command. Then, he ordered another series of offensives in Russia in retribution for the defeat at Moscow, this time focusing his attack forces to the south of Russia, where one of the most pivotal battles of World War II would be fought in one of the largest and most important cities in southern Russia, Stalingrad. Before we get back to the Eastern Front, Let's take a quick look at what was happening in North Africa around the same time. A brief refresher on the colonial holdings here. Remember that in our Powder Keg in Europe episode, which was immediately before we covered World War I, Italy fought a year-long and largely forgotten war against the Ottoman Empire, which awarded them the territory of Libya. Despite their internal problems during and after the First World War, Italy was able to hold on to that territory as Mussolini expanded his holdings elsewhere in Ethiopia and Albania. Also remember that in the first two years of the war in Europe, Mussolini had annexed Greece and half of Yugoslavia, but his ambitions rose far beyond that. When Britain declared war on the Axis powers, they were in control of Egypt and the Suez Canal, so Mussolini's first course of action was to knock Britain out of North Africa by dislodging their control over the region. Within a week of the declaration of war in 1940, Italian and British troops were exchanging gunfire on the sands of Egypt, and Italy outnumbering their British opponents 8 to 1, quickly began making headway, advancing 60 miles into Egypt in a matter of weeks and establishing a defensive line. But the progress was disrupted when an unexpected attack took place on the beaches of Tunisia to the west of Libya, carried out by British, Indian, and Australian troops. Mussolini was forced to redirect a large segment of his army to meet the attackers, and his advances in North Africa were being brought to a standstill. North Africa would go back and forth between the Axis and the Allies for two more years, with the British troops, largely colonial troops, notably from New Zealand, were able to hold on to Egypt, but just barely. They suffered crushing losses in doing so. There's an important thing to note here about the Italian situation in North Africa, and it's that Adolf Hitler held little confidence in Mussolini's ability to hold strong against the British. Hitler had already swooped in to rescue the Italians during their wars with Yugoslavia and Greece, and he wasn't interested in Italy losing the territory in the south of the Mediterranean, which would leave many Italian shipping lanes exposed. It's important to see Hitler's lack of faith because it was so prominent that he relocated a large number of German troops to North Africa to assist the Italians in 1941 and 1942. Were it not for Hitler's intervention, it is highly likely that Mussolini would have lost North Africa to the Allies by the end of 1942. By the end of 1942, the Allies were prepared to launch their most audacious landing operation since the beginning of the war. With the entrance of the United States into the fighting at the end of 1941, cooperation between Free France, Britain, and the United States was creating opportunities that the Allies could not pass up. The first of these major operations was called Operation Torch, and consisted of a series of landings taking place in Vichy French-held Morocco and Algeria. I've had the thought to describe the France situation during the rest of the war. As we know, France fell to the Axis in June of 1940. The French government fled to Britain, and many elements of the French army fled to various allied nations. When France fell, 
several politicians rapidly rose through the ranks uh, as the rest either bailed out of the country or resigned, and the new politicians quickly signed an armistice with Germany on Germany's terms. One of those terms was to disavow the French politicians who had fled France and still considered themselves the rightful government of France. So they did, and declared themselves the official French government, operating out of a little fancy schmancy town called Vichy. They became known as Vichy France. The French government in exile, however, began calling themselves Free France, and much of the French military still answered to them instead of Vichy France. Vichy France would become authoritarian, anti-Semitic, and borderline fascist, and many historians consider it a puppet state of the Axis powers, though it never formally joined up with them. Free France, conversely, was forced to invade French holdings in North Africa held by Vichy France, with French troops fighting French troops. They also sponsored the French resistance, which was largely led by French president-in-exile Charles de Gaulle. It was somewhat complicated. Bottom line, there were two French states in 1940 through 1944, Free France and Vichy France. Free France still fought the Axis powers, Vichy France complied with them and governed over French territory. The landings of Operation Torch began on November 8th, 1942 and ended November 16th, and they were a massive success. By the end of the operation, over 100,000 Allied troops were in Northwest Africa and had established a number of beachheads for more troops to follow. As stated previously, Algeria and Morocco were still held by Vichy France, and after a few sporadic firefights, the territories fell into free French hands. The main Vichy leader in North Africa was soon after assassinated, and a free French official took his place. Then, the Allies turned their attention to Tunisia and Libya. Panicked at the fall of Vichy France held North Africa, Hitler immediately dispatched thousands of soldiers to Tunisia and established a military occupation of all of mainland France. Shortly after the landings in North Africa, the Allies opened a new front in Tunisia. And by the end of November, French, American, British, New Zealander, Indian, and Greek troops were engaging Italian and German soldiers in open warfare across the Tunisian border. Allied troops would advance steadily toward the capital of Tunis through the winter, bolstering their forces along the way. Germany and Italy continued pouring troops and equipment into Tunis, knowing that losing North Africa would not only be an enormous blow to their colonial holdings and national prestige, but it also meant they'd lose control of the Mediterranean and by extension, leave the Italian coastline open to a larger Allied invasion. So the battle for Tunisia intensified, and three months after the invasion of Tunisia, the situation had reached a deadlock. The fighting built to a climax in February of 1943 at an area called Kasserin Pass. There, a large force of Allied soldiers encountered the most coordinated and well-trained joint opposition the Axis had mustered since the beginning of the war. Despite being outnumbered, German and Italian troops led by infamous German General Erwin Rommel, the Desert Fox, launched an attack on a number of ill-equipped and poorly organized Allied positions, shattering them and causing a disorganized retreat. When the Allies finally regrouped, they were again attacked at night, with multiple positions being overrun by infantry before being hit again with another armored blitz. Forming yet another defensive line after miles of retreat, the Allies were again hit with another Axis blitz that focused on their weak points, and this time, 
the defensive line was cracked open at a pivotal juncture, isolating pockets of Allied resistance and opening the road to vital Allied-held cities, which were also shortly overrun. Having broken the back of the Allied advance and suffering from overextended supply lines, with soldiers exhausted from weeks of continuous fighting, Erwin Rommel ordered his troops to fall back and regroup, satisfied with the damage he'd caused the Allies. In various surrenders through the last few weeks, the Germans had taken 3,000 Allied prisoners, and the Allies had suffered 10,000 total casualties, 10 times the number suffered by the Axis powers. It was the first major setback in the Allied invasion of Tunisia, and the Axis powers celebrated their victory. The Allies, however, licking their wounds, decided that instead of punishing the responsible commanders, they opted to learn from their mistakes. They adopted new tactics and analyzed the Axis movements, adjusted the training offered to their soldiers and commanders to best counter them. Barely a month after the disaster at Kasserin Pass, the Allies were once again on the offensive. In a small town in southern Tunisia called Medinin, an Axis attack force attempted to surprise a larger Allied group by attacking their lines, but the attack was a costly failure. As the Axis forces retreated toward a defensive line called the Marath Line, the Allies decided that, in their weakened state, the Axis forces manning the Marath Line were primed to crumble under a large attack. The Marath Line was situated between a mountain range called the Matmata Hills and the Mediterranean Sea, which was, and was built originally by the French to defend against an Italian invasion from Libya. Now, the Italians and Germans were using it to defend against an Allied attack. French commanders knew the fortifications and also knew their weaknesses. Given enough time, the enemy could distract defenders on the line and circumvent the fortifications by going around the Matmata Hills, but it would only work if the defenders believed the largest attack came head-on. On the 16th of March 1943, the attack on the Marath Line began. Allied troops attacked fiercely but could not puncture the strong fortifications, but that wasn't their main goal. A large number of troops began moving behind the Matmata Hills at night, attempting to flank the defenders on the Marath Line. Five days after the initial attack on the Marath Line, the Allied troops encountered fierce resistance as they reached the end of the Matmata Hills. The Axis troops suddenly caught on. But just as they did, British bombers soared overhead and crippled their coordination. Allied troops poured through the gap. In the last week of March, the Axis attempted a feeble counterattack but were repulsed. Rather than face encirclement, the Axis commanders declared a complete withdrawal from the Marath Line, abandoning it to the Allies. It was a breakthrough the Allies desperately needed. The loss of the Marath Line caused Axis commanders to believe that the victory at Kasserim Pass had caused the Allies to weaken their forces in the north of Tunisia to reinforce their southern battalions, which were the ones that took the Marath Line. As such, they allocated more forces to halt the advance of those southern attack groups. However, their forces were also stretched thin. With the territory the Allies had gained, they were able to command airfields in Tunisia and gave pilots strict orders to shoot down any Axis transport plane they saw. Hundreds of planes attempting to bring reinforcements to Tunisia from Sicily were shot down. British submarines operating from the small island of Malta were also given orders to sink anything flying a German or Italian flag, which they carried out. The Axis troops in Tunisia were being strangled. 
In the first week of April 1943, the Allies launched their most sweeping attack yet, their target being Tunis, the vital port city in northern Tunisia. Despite their strained supply lines, the Axis forces fought gallantly and savagely, proving the attack to be costly to the Allies. Nevertheless, the Allies pressed forward, slowly taking strategic positions en route to Tunis throughout April. On April 30th, they finally achieved a breakthrough, and on May 6th, the final defenses around Tunis collapsed. By the morning of May 7th, American and British tanks were rolling through the streets of Tunis. The next week, as news reached various Axis positions across North Africa concerning the fall of Tunis, they surrendered. Mussolini personally ordered the surrender of his head general. Over 200,000 German and Italian troops surrendered. It was a devastating blow to the Axis, and to add insult to injury, days after the surrender, Allied ships began sailing through the Strait of Gibraltar, which had essentially been closed since the fall of France. The battle for North Africa was over, and it was a loss that the Axis would have trouble recovering from. Hitler, desperate to maintain his hold on the Mediterranean, had sent many of his elite soldiers to North Africa, as well as many elite units of the Luftwaffe, and many had been lost either in the fighting or in the surrender. The Allies had gained valuable intel on Axis tactics, and it prepared them for subsequent operations, which they quickly prepared for. Now, the Mediterranean was open. The entire southern front of Hitler's territory was open. Back on the Eastern Front, what was happening while North Africa was a battleground? Well, after Hitler's humiliating defeat at Moscow, he changed his tactics. Still trying to starve the Russians out with the ongoing siege of Leningrad, he still believed that a severe blow to the Soviet morale could cripple the nation. But Moscow was just too tough. Instead, he looked to the south, where the German army was still taking large swaths of indefensible Soviet land. A lot of Russia is flat and sparsely populated, which makes it really hard to defend. It also means that these huge swaths of territory being captured took the German troops further and further from their own bases, causing, you guessed it, supply line problems. Hitler's new tactics of Blitzkrieg had presented its own new problem. His highly mechanized military needed more oil than had ever been necessitated in warfare. Back in North Africa, Hitler had attempted to breach the British lines in Egypt to take the Suez Canal, because doing so would give them control of the oil trade in the region. However, in June of 1942, their last major offensive was halted by the British defenders, and their hopes of taking the Suez Canal were dashed. Frustrated, Hitler set his eyes on another set of oil fields that were suddenly within his grasp. In a region called the Caucasus, in southwestern Russia, there lie a large series of oil fields that exist to this day. Today, the area consists of Chechnya, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and a few other smaller territories. Hitler, already waist-deep in the Soviet Union, thought it was a swell place to have his next focused assault. But there was one vital population center standing in his way. It was called Stalingrad. Not only a major population center, but also a juncture of all the major roads in the region, as well as a symbolic stronghold of Soviet pride. If the Germans could break through Stalingrad, it would be a significant hit to Soviet morale, and it would open up the Caucasus for exploitation, giving the German war machine a much-needed boost. For the frustrated Adolf Hitler, having just given up in Egypt, was an, this was a no-brainer. He had more forces at his disposal, and he considered the Soviets an inferior enemy. 
He moved on Stalingrad. Stalingrad wasn't in the Caucasus, it was north of it, where modern-day Volgograd is. But if Hitler could keep the Soviets occupied in Stalingrad, it would leave the way open for him to take the Caucasus uninhibited, and then take over Stalingrad once the Caucasus was under his control. So the fresh Caucasian oil could come straight through Stalingrad the day it fell under his control, well on its way to the German heartland. In July of 1942, Hitler split his armies in southern Russia into two main groups, Attack Group A and Attack Group B. Attack Group A was directed to the Caucasus, and Attack Group B was directed to Stalingrad. Hitler hoped that he could split the Soviets in half as well, therefore creating an easy capture of Stalingrad and a subsequent defeat of the Soviets. As the Germans neared Stalingrad, Attack Group A poured into the Caucasus, capturing huge segments of Soviet land. The attack went so well, in fact, that Hitler had to rein in his troops in order not to overextend his supply lines yet again. Meanwhile, the Battle of Stalingrad began. In August of 1942, Hitler blitzed the city, and within a few weeks had broken through the Soviet defenses, and German troops were on the streets of Stalingrad. Stalin, in a panic, ordered that no civilians would be allowed to leave the city, and anyone who could hold a rifle would be given one. He pulled troops from anywhere he could, some as far away as Siberia, to reinforce his lines in Stalingrad. He began using female volunteer battalions to, command, to commandeer anti-aircraft nests, which shocked the German troops who captured them. German bombers began reducing the city to rubble. Fighting devolved into house-to-house, room-to-room combat. The fate of the Soviet Union was in the hands of the few defenders of Stalingrad. Some of the most heroic stories of the war came out of this fight. A Soviet guard's rifle division was sent into the fray with 10,000 troops. They halted several German advances, but only 300 of them walked out of Stalingrad at the end of the battle. In another part of the city, a small contingent of Soviet troops held out in a vital grain elevator that supplied food to the city. The defenders held out for five days before running out of food and water. German troops anticipated to meet several hundred defenders when they finally stormed the building, but found only 40 bodies within. No one had escaped. The Germans were shocked. In yet another story, Soviet forces were cut off in a small residential, residential district and dug in to fortify a single building with heavy machine gun nests, barbed wire, and landmines. Those units would hold out for 60 days against German attacks that came every day, sometimes several times a day. The Soviet troops would only leave this building, nicknamed Pavlov's house, when they were relieved by Soviet troops from the rear, and all defenders would then go on the offensive to drive the Germans out of Stalingrad. These acts of heroism were prompted by Stalin's most recent direct order to his armies, which fell in order with similar orders passed down by Hitler. Defend unto the last man and the last bullet. The Soviets took that very seriously, obviously. The fighting raged through August, September, October, and into November as the Soviet defenses were slowly ground down by the German advance. By mid-November, the Germans controlled a majority of the city, and only a few pockets of Soviet resistance remained. As the Germans prepared to celebrate victory, Stalin sent them reeling with a massive surprise attack. Focused so heavily on taking the city, Hitler had neglected to pay attention to the area surrounding the city, where Soviet forces were encircling the city and preparing to attack from two sides. It was a gamble that Stalin was taking, but it paid off. 
In mid-November, Soviet forces attacked the German flanks with explosive results. Both armies to the north and south of the city were immediately thrown aside, and the, and the Soviet attack groups pushed the offensive to surround the city, which was accomplished by November 23rd, not two weeks after the offensive began. Over 200,000 Axis troops were surrounded inside Stalingrad. Panicked, the German high command beseeched Hitler for orders and were disappointed when he insisted that attack group A continue their invasion of the Caucasus instead of pull back to relieve the forces trapped inside Stalingrad. The Luftwaffe attempted to fly supplies in to aid the beleaguered and demoralized troops, but just couldn't quite get enough planes in. When the Germans realized just how desperate their situation was, they began flying troops out on transport planes. All in all, 35,000 German soldiers would flee the city by air, while 105,000 would surrender, and 60,000 would die. Only 10,000 troops would continue fighting all the way to the bitter end. By the end of December, the German army attempting to breach back into Stalingrad was in dire straits, and the Soviets aimed to break the spine of their force. In a savage offensive, Stalin concentrated his forces on the weakest points in the German line, and threw everything he had at them, inflicting massive casualties on the Axis forces and sending them into a disorganized route across southern Russia. Taking hundreds of miles of ground every week, the Soviets decimated the terrified and disorganized Axis troops and retook almost the entire Caucasus by the 1st of February, with the Germans still in full retreat. Hitler continued to order no retreat and no surrender the whole time. In a flagrant violation of Hitler's orders, a German officer crossed battle lines in the night to offer surrender and negotiate terms. The Soviets accepted. All Axis forces in southern Russia retreated to Axis territory or surrendered. The Battle of Stalingrad, one of the most pivotal battles in World War II, came to an end. It is characterized as the greatest defeat in the history of the German army, suffering almost one million casualties, whether killed, wounded, captured, or missing. Hitler was reeling. His forces had been pushed back in Egypt and devastated in Russia. Now, in February of 1943, he was sending vital troops to try to stem the bleeding in Tunisia, which would also in time fall to the Allies. Things weren't going much better for the Japanese in the East. After the situation reached a deadlock in the Pacific in 1941, Japan attempted a few new offensives in 1942 which didn't go nearly as well as they'd hoped. Assembling several large fleets, they targeted a number of islands held by the United States and Britain, but were intercepted by a carrier force spearheaded by the United States that had traveled to the battlefield much more quickly than the Japanese had anticipated. At Midway Island and in the Coral Sea, a new brand of warfare was invented as aircraft carriers squared off, sending dozens of warplanes at one another and sinking several precious warships while sending many steel aircraft to the cold depths of the Pacific. The tide of the war in the Pacific officially turned when a large Japanese aircraft carrier fleet went toe-to-toe -to -toe with an equally large American carrier fleet at Midway Island, an aptly named atoll about halfway between Hawaii and Japan. Midway also held a small runway which housed over a hundred American aircraft, while the three aircraft carriers held twice that. Aiding the American fleet were se uh, seven heavy cruisers and 15 destroyers. 
The Japanese fielded four aircraft carriers and almost two dozen other warships. From the 4th to the 7th of June, 1942, the two carrier fleets collided and engaged in an all-out slugfest, ending with all four of the Japanese carriers being completely destroyed, taking every single one of their aircraft with them, along with one of their heavy cruisers. While the American aircraft losses were heavy, they only lost one of their aircraft carriers and one destroyer. The Japanese survivors left Midway with their tail between their legs, and the victorious Americans limped back to Pearl Harbor, hurt, but the winners. A few months later, the Allies capitalized on their victory at Midway Island by launching an attack on the island of Guadalcanal in the Solomon Islands near Australia and New Guinea. This attack, if successful, would undermine the hold of the Japanese in the South Pacific and provide a vital jumping-off point for the Allies for further planned attacks in the Pacific. While battle raged in Stalingrad, it also raged on Guadalcanal, with the Americans finally putting boots on the ground in the Pacific and leading a strong invasion force against a weakened garrison of Japanese troops, who were still spread rather thin across their various imperial holdings and still fighting the British in Burma and the Chinese in China. On land, air, and sea, the Japanese and the Allies fought tooth and nail over Guadalcanal before the Japanese evacuated the island and pulled their fleet back in February of 1943, taking heavy and costly losses. Guadalcanal, though earned with the blood of thousands of U.S. troops, was the first major action featuring U.S. ground troops in the Pacific and precipitated a number of battles that would follow as Guadalcanal served as a vital hub for invasion forces in the future. Now we get to mid-1943. For the first four years of the war, the Axis was at the wheel. Japan took over pretty much all of the South Pacific and had pummeled China into a corner. Italy had won over Albania, Yugoslavia, Greece, and was beating Britain to a pulp in Egypt. And Germany had overtaken virtually all of mainland Europe and launched a devastating invasion of Russia. Things were going pretty well for the Axis for the first four years of the war, all things considering. However... Late 1942 and all of 1943 marked a clear turning point for the Axis powers. While high school history books in the United States mark the turning point of the war as the D-Day landings in Normandy in 1944, the Axis was on the defensive for a long time before that. The fall of Tunisia to the Allies, the heroic defense of Moscow and Stalingrad, and the Japanese defeats at Midway and Guadalcanal put all three major Axis powers in a really tough position, and all three dictators, Hitler, Mussolini, and Hirohito, had to take stock of what they had and decide if they wanted to keep their forces spread thin and try to desperately hold on to their conquered territories, or cut their losses and pull their troops back to a stronger, more defensible position. Surprisingly, all three dictators decided to give the same orders. No retreat, no matter what. Let's jump back to the Mediterranean. In 1943, North Africa was squarely under the control of the Allies, who were exploiting their newfound access to the Strait of Gibraltar to the fullest, flooding North Africa with fresh troops, supplies, warplanes, and warships in preparation for their next big move. On the night of July 9, 1943, Axis troops stationed on the island of Sicily in southwest Italy were shocked to see American and British planes dropping paratroopers across the island. Though the landings were plagued by missed targets and confusion, by July 15th, most of the Allied forces were able to rally to create strong points and attacked isolated Axis patrols. 
The day after the first airborne landings, Allied ships anchored off the coast and sent dozens of landing craft to the shore, which were also hampered by bad weather and unseen sandbars. But despite this, Axis defenders had not anticipated a landing in these bad weather conditions and were caught off guard by the attack. By noon, the Allies had already captured the strategically important port in the city of Lysita in the south, which provided a place for them to land more troops and armor in relative safety. Despite a few pockets of stout resistance by Axis units, many Allied attack groups found themselves capturing towns in Sicily with relative ease. German and Italian groups continued to fall back to strong points, particularly Mount Etna in the east of the island, and Mount Pellegrino in the west, which both gave out after a few days of pretty intense pressure. Now controlling large portions of Sicily, the Allies began rooting out pockets of Axis resistance and pushing the bulk of the Axis forces closer to the east coast of the island. After only one month of fighting, Axis leaders were already making plans for their forces to be removed from the island. In fact, as early as July 27th, the Axis military advisors were calling the Battle of Sicily a lost fight. This is in stark contrast to Hitler's orders, of, uh, orders to fight the Soviet Union, where he consistently ordered to fight to the last man. In the second week of August, Allied soldiers began encountering dozens of heavy minefields, blown up bridges, and blockaded roads as they pursued the Axis troops, bogging them down for hours, days, or even a week at a time. When Allied spy planes spotted landing craft and transport ships crossing the channel between Sicily and mainland Italy, they realized that the Italian and German forces had no intention of standing and fighting. They had every intention of fleeing and regrouping on the mainland. These obstacles were just buying them enough time to get off. In a frantic counter, Allied forces pieced together a shoddily formed landing party intended to shock the Axis operation into a pause, giving the ground forces time to bear down on them. But when the landing party stormed the east shores of Italy, they were met with... nothing. The shores were deserted. The Axis troops were already snug in their beds on the mainland before the Allies could blink. It was one of the most rapid, well-planned, organized, and efficient evacuations in military history. In less than a week, the Axis forces had evacuated over 110,000 troops, 14,000 vehicles, 47 tanks, 138 big guns, and 21,000 tons of ammunition and gear. Most of the transporting was accomplished by the German military. To me, this proves that Hitler was fully capable of executing an orderly withdrawal at places like Stalingrad and Moscow, preserving countless lives and setting the, setting the stage for more coordinated attacks in the future. He simply chose not to, and it may have cost Germany the war. Not all Axis forces were so lucky. Exact figures are varied, but it's likely that around 100,000 Italian and German troops were captured by Allied forces during the invasion of Sicily, and many of these soldiers had information about Axis positions on the mainland that were probably extracted by Allied interrogation teams in the next few months to prep for the next big Allied move. They took a few weeks to breathe and enjoy the Italian sunshine, because their next challenge would be the most difficult yet. Unbeknownst to the Allies, the invasion of Sicily had a much more far-reaching effect on the Axis than they could have ever dreamed. 
Since the beginning of the war, Mussolini had been trying to keep civil unrest quiet to the rest of the world, but toward the end of 1942, many inside Italy had been growing more and more dissatisfied with his rule. His colonial conquests in Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Libya had deeply wounded the Italian economy, only to eventually be lost to the Allies. His military leadership had almost nothing to put on display, and the few victories he touted had only been won with the help of the German military. Most of the food procured by farmers was being allocated to the military, and many Italians were going hungry. Citizens had only been allowed to purchase very limited amounts of fuel at a time. To add to this, Mussolini had shuffled around his top ministers only months before, replacing many longtime politicians with personal confidants and fascist party members, including his son-in-law, which upset many Italians who were weary of fascist authoritarianism and nepotism. On top of it all, Mussolini believed that the war could be won in the Mediterranean and had, and had requested that Hitler sign a separate peace with the Soviets so he could relocate his troops to North Africa and Italy to beat the Allies but Hitler had flatly refused and continued throwing his troops into the meat grinder of Stalingrad. Then, Tunisia and Sicily fell, and Allied planes began bombing Rome, and the Italian people were officially fed up with Mussolini's policies and leadership. Faced with the prospect of an invasion of mainland Italy, many political parties in the Italian government formed an anti-fascist coalition, and as Sicily fell to the Allies, called for a vote of no confidence in Mussolini. Orators took the stand at a special grand council in front of all of the Italian legislature, including Mussolini himself, and declared that Mussolini had violated the Italian constitution and could no longer be trusted. However, Mussolini had ordered for the black shirts to surround the building with guns during the meeting. Remember, the black shirts are the fascist paramilitary organization that Mussolini used to take power back in the 1920s. Because of the presence of the black shirts, most orators in the meeting were members from the fascist party. Despite this, the vote of no confidence passed, and Mussolini was removed from office and arrested. A new premier ascended to leadership, and many Italians believed that it would be the end of, the t of Italian involvement in the war. They were disappointed to hear that the new premier intended to continue fighting alongside Germany, but were otherwise relieved to hear that their fascist dictator would no longer be in control of the nation. Hitler, however, was furious. He immediately moved several divisions of German troops from uh, to northern Italy and occupied it, then flew a commando mission into Rome, broke Mussolini out of prison, and declared most of northern Italy a separate state from southern Italy, appointing Mussolini the ruler of the state, which was, for all intents and purposes, a German puppet state. Mussolini just did Hitler's bidding. He had no real authority anymore. Loyal Italian fascists fled to northern Italy, and Republicans, communists, and anyone who opposed fascism fled to southern Italy. Italy was, essentially, now in a state of civil war, but Hitler couldn't be bothered to send more troops into Italy, and he wouldn't dare try to attack the new government in Rome. He had bigger fish to fry, and he was having a very bad time in the east. The siege of Leningrad had, Leningrad had not broken the resolve of the Soviets living there, despite it having already lasted years. 
His attacks on Moscow and Stalingrad had resulted in deeply costly defeats, and even though he'd inflicted millions of casualties on the Soviets, they seemed to have endless reserves of men and women to send to the front lines, and not a single one of them ever felt cold, no matter how frigid the winters got. Now, with his armies reeling from the Soviet counterattack, at Stalingrad that cut off tens of thousands of his troops in the Caucasus, he was forced to make a choice, cut his losses and regroup further west, or try another attack. I don't feel the need to say outright what he chose, considering what his last few decisions have been. The Battle of Kursk was Hitler's next attempted push into the Soviet Union, and it began on July 5th, 1943, just before the Allied invasion of Sicily. However, when news reached him of the Allied attack in Italy, he was forced to divert thousands of precious troops, transports, and other resources to Italy in preparation for the inevitable invasion of the mainland. As the Soviets saw the German attacks stagnate as the resources were diverted to the Italian front, they responded with yet another ferocious counterattack that shattered the German lines. Hitler maintained his doctrine of fighting to the last man and deeply interfered with the decisions of the German high command, while Stalin opted to give his general staff liberty to make decisions on the battlefield, which resulted in quick action by the Soviets and delayed reactions by the Germans. Kursk was the first time that a German attack had not broken the lines of the Soviet Union, but the Soviet counterattack had cost the Germans many miles of territory. Through the rest of the war, they would never regain this ground and would remain on the defensive for two long years. While Hitler and Mussolini were not enjoying themselves in Europe, Japan was having an equally bad day in the Pacific. While they'd taken Burma from the British and successfully captured thousands of miles of Chinese territory, their occupation in Burma was hampered by guerrilla warfare being carried out by resistance movements, and the Chinese were finally able to muster enough cooperation between the communists and the nationalists to fend off a number of costly Japanese attacks. The loss of four aircraft carriers and hundreds of planes at Midway, followed by thousands of troops at Guadalcanal, had been devastating to their fighting force in the Pacific, and they were nursing their wounds. These losses left their garrisons on various islands, such as the Gilbert and Solomon Islands, devoid of reinforcements, which the Americans exploited with landings across the Pacific. The Japanese government was also horrified to learn that the Allied leaders had met publicly with Chinese leader Chiang Kai-shek in Egypt in November of 1943 and issued the Cairo Declaration, which stated that in the event of a coordinated Allied victory, all land that Japanese had seized since the beginning of World War I would be revoked, including nearly all their holdings in the Pacific as well as Manchuria. It would effectively bring the Japanese Empire to an untimely and swift end. Frantic and desperate, the Japanese launched a reckless attack, but this time in Southeast Asia. Long had they held Burma, which bordered India. India had long been under the control of the British, and many Indian troops had been fighting and dying in the British military in the various conflicts Britain had been part of for years. Some Japanese leaders theorized that an invasion of India under the premise of liberation could potentially cause an, a popular uprising and embroil the British in a revolutionary conflict, taking valuable resources away from their war effort. They also theorized that the Americans would swoop in to help the British, giving the Japanese a chance to regroup and plan their next actions. In early 1944, Japan invaded India, also launching another massive offensive in China, as many Chinese troops had been moved to Burma and India to assist the Americans, Australians, and British with fending off attacks there. 
Japan initially gained significant ground in India and achieved many strategic goals in China, but they made a fatal flaw in India. The Indian people had been under the thumb of the British, yes, but they had also seen the imperial aspirations of the Japanese, who were brutalizing most of the territories they occupied. To them, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. A detachment of 50,000 Indian freedom fighters did join the Japanese, but the bulk of the Indian military stuck with the British and fought their own fathers, brothers, and sons on their native soil. Between March and early July of 1944, the Japanese and the Allies clashed across China and India before the J Japanese were beaten back, suffering, most, suffering some of the most significant losses of the war up to that point, with as many as 55,000 dead. The Allies suffered a fraction of that. Japanese troops fell back deep into Burma and finally managed to regain defensive posturing in the eastern parts of the country. The Allied forces in China were not as fortunate. The Japanese military was still far better trained and better equipped than the Chinese armies, and the massive Japanese offensive crushed Chinese resistance across the country, partially because many of the American-trained Chinese soldiers were tied up in Burma and India. Japanese soldiers pushed deep into Chinese territory, inflicting hundreds of thousands of casualties before eventually being halted and forced back. But the damage to the Chinese military had been done. Even though it was the last major Japanese offensive in China, the offensive had broken the back of the Chinese def defense and achieved a far different and unintended consequence. China and Japan had now been at war for over seven years, and the Chinese were embroiled in civil war for years before that. As a shaky alliance between the Chinese communists and Chinese nationalists was showing signs of disintegrating under the pressure of the Japanese advance, many Chinese citizens in the countryside lost faith in Chiang Kai-shek and his nationalist armies, looking instead to the communist factions for protection, as the communist factions were the only ones largely waging guerrilla warfare, while the nationalist armies were usually on the front lines fending off the massive invasion force. Chinese civilians were beleaguered by constant bloodshed, and many young children were nearing adolescence without knowing a nation that was not at war with itself or with someone else. The communist factions, led by Mao Zedong, were proclaiming dreams of a communist utopia where everyone would work together for the good of all, which was appealing to the war-weary Chinese. As the fighting dragged on, Mao Zedong rallied more and more Chinese civilians to the communist cause, which deeply unnerved Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalist forces. The Japanese offensives ground to a halt, and as China fell into another stalemate, communist forces began seizing territory in the northeastern sections of the nation without alerting the nationalists of their intentions, which caused several clashes between communists and nationalists. The Japanese, too weak from their failed offensive and busy fending off the Americans in the Pacific, were unable to take advantage of the chaos. China, once again, hurtled toward a three-way war. But while the United States and the Soviet Union wanted to help, they had their own battles to win. The Allies spent the rest of 1943 finalizing their foothold in Italy. Mussolini had been deposed and Italy was in turmoil, with rival fascist and Republican parties clashing in the streets, vying for power. Hitler still claimed northern Italy as his own, and Mussolini still retained power there. Sort of. Southern Italy was technically a new Italy, but there were hundreds of thousands of German troops and Italian tro troops loyal to Mussolini who had just fled Sicily and were anxiously awaiting the arrival of Allied troops on the mainland. 
At the end of September of 1943, the Allies began landing on the southern tip of Italy under heavy fire from German and Italian defenders. Storming beaches being bombarded by artillery and peppered with machine guns. Progress was minimal for the first few days, and there were moments where German counterattacks threatened to quell the offensive, but the Allied lines did hold, if only by a thread. Then, something happened the Germans and Italian fascists did not expect. Remember how most of Italy was tired of the war and tired of fascism? Well, when word reached the Italians in the south that the Allies had landed on their shores, a number of popular uprisings spontaneously sprang up across the southern provinces of the nation, throwing German and fascist Italian troops out of their towns and villages. The most popular of these took place in Naples, where 1,500 Italian civilians took up arms against 20,000 occupying troops. Fierce clashes between the locals and the occupiers lasted four days, now remembered as the four days in Naples, before the German soldiers fled when they saw Allied convoys on the horizon. Allied troops were greeted as liberators. In the next two weeks, most of southern Italy was consolidated and under the control of the Allied forces. Their advance was stalled by a stout German and Italian defense constructed in the heavily mountainous terrain in central Italy. The Allies took a breather. Between October and December of 1943, troops from all over the world flooded into southern Italy in preparation for the final push to Rome. By the 1st of January in 1944, troops from the United States, Britain, South Africa, Poland, India, Palestine, Morocco, Canada, New Zealand, Greece, and even Brazil were marching rank and file preparing to deliver the final blow to fascist Italy. Thousands of members of the Italian resistance also joined the fight. In all, it's estimated that 1.3 million soldiers attacked the Axis defenses in Italy in the first week of January 1944. Movement was slow and costly. The Italians and Germans had entrenched themselves so deeply in the terrain that the foreign invaders were forced back in three separate offensives known as the Battle of Monte Cassino. And it wasn't until May, five months later, that a major breakthrough was finally achieved. On June 4th, 1944, Allied troops walked into Rome, which had been completely abandoned by Axis troops. And not a moment too soon, because the most famous event of World War II was about to happen. After the Germans invaded the Soviet Union in 1941, Stalin had been putting pressure on the rest of the Allies to open a new front in Western Europe to take some heat off his back. In response, the Allies had attacked North Africa and Sicily, but Stalin was still bearing the brunt of the German army in the Soviet Union, creating tension between the Western Allies and the Soviets. By June of 1944, the Allies were finally prepared to open their new front in Western Europe, and on June 6th, it was opened explosively. In the early morning of June 6th, under heavy cloud cover and high winds, 150,000 Allied troops stormed the beaches of Normandy in northern France, many being torn to shreds by German machine guns on the coast, in an operation codenamed Operation Overlord. It was, and still is, the largest amphibious military operation in history. The Allies had been preparing since 1941 for the attack, but despite the extensive preparations, many aspects of the operation went horribly awry. The landings were preceded by an extensive bombing campaign and a detailed airborne landing, but the bombs mostly missed their targets and the airborne troops usually missed their landing zones, meaning many of the German defenses remained intact when the Allied boats and boots hit the shore. 
Hitler had been hard at work since 1941 fortifying the coast, creating an intricate series of defenses he called the Atlantic Wall, which stretched from the western coast of France all the way through the Netherlands and Belgium up the west coast of Denmark, including the entire coast of Norway. The Allied objective was to neutralize many of these defenses or at least soften them up before the landing craft were launched, but unfortunately this was not the case, and thousands of Allied troops fell when they ran directly into German guns on the beaches, most notably Omaha Beach. Suffering heavy casualties, the Allies did not succeed in, ex in accomplishing most of the, uh, any of the major objectives they'd planned at the end of the first day. In fact, the most important day one objective, linking all five major beachheads targeted for landing, was not accomplished until six days after the landing. Despite that, the Allies were able to establish a beachhead in Normandy. They accepted the necessary losses and maintained their plan of attack, albeit a bit slower than expected. After the climactic battles of Moscow and Stalingrad, German troops were running for the hills back to Berlin with the Soviets at their heels. Never quite able to get their feet under them, Germans would continue to mount feeble resistance time and time again all through 1944 on the Eastern Front, but the Soviet steamroller would continue to send them running at every encounter. By the end of April, they'd captured Crimea, Ukraine, and Belarus. By August, Soviet forces were encroaching on Warsaw, Poland, a pivotal German stronghold in the East. And here we see one of the more tragic stories of the war one that I have researched heavily for years. German armies had occupied Warsaw since the initial German invasion of Poland five years earlier in 1939, and in that time, an underground resistance movement had gained traction in the city. The Polish government had fled to London and remained there as Europe fell to the Nazis, but had retained some contact with the resistance movement, which began calling themselves the Home Army. The Polish government in exile worked closely with the Allies to create a plan of action, hoping that an eventual Allied invasion of Europe from the West, which would eventually come to fruition, would dislodge the Nazis through uh, enough from Poland that the Home Army could mount an uprising to drive them from Warsaw and reinstate the Polish government in the capital city. However, as the years dragged on, a large-scale invasion of Western Europe by the Allies seemed further and further away, and the home army was forced to face the reality that the Soviet Union was much more likely to reach Warsaw than the Western Allies were. And if that were the case, it was the best opportunity they'd get to reestablish their sovereignty. So here's the deal. Poland didn't like the Soviet Union, and the Soviets didn't like Poland. If you remember, Poland and the Soviet Union actually fought a war between 1919 and 1921, and Poland beat the Soviets. That was how Poland became an independent nation in the first place. So Stalin, a staunch Soviet nationalist, had jumped at the opportunity to join Hitler in invading Poland and carving it up between the two nations in 1939. In doing so, the Soviets had brutalized the Polish people committing destructive war crimes and trying to quickly cover them up, including a massacre of up to 22,000 Polish prisoners of war in a single day. So like I said, Poland and the Soviets were not friends. But the Polish government in exile was included in the coalition against the Axis, so the Poles had to make do. As the Soviets stormed across the grasslands of Ukraine and crossed the historical border of Poland, the Poles set their long-awaited plan into action. 
The Home Army had established an extensive underground network of spies, resistance fighters, and message runners throughout every city, often utilizing sewers and tunnels to relay information and hide. The Home Army was constituted of between 200,000 and 600,000 members of the nation, including combat units, logistics units, and support units, making the Polish Home Army one of the largest resistance movements in Europe during World War II. One of the unique aspects of the Home Army is that a large portion, potentially 15% or more, of the insurgents in the army were female, and another portion were children. Two all-female battalions were created during the twilight months of the war in Warsaw, one demolitions battalion and one battalion that handled the logistics of troop and supplies movement supplies movements in the sewer systems and children as young as 12 were tasked with delivering vital, vital correspondence between underground cells in the major cities with german occupying troops rarely suspecting them of being part of the resistance due to their age by early 1944 the home army was embedded deeply enough into the polish underground to start waging war by the time the Soviets were nearing the Polish border, the Poles had already begun operations to throw the Germans off balance in the region before the Soviets arrived. Their intentions were to demonstrate to the Soviets that they were able to hold their own in hopes that the Soviets would re recognize their sovereignty. And also, if the Poles were able to take control of Warsaw, the Polish government in London could return and the Soviets would not be able to recapture Poland because then, technically, it would be an act of war against the rest of the Allies. The Home Army knew that even though the Soviets were making incredible gains against the Germans, they would not risk opening hostilities with the Allies who had just recently gained favor with the Americans. In June of 1944, the Soviet Union launched Operation Bagration, one of their largest, offensive, uh, largest offensives of the war, with one of the primary goals of the offensive being to break the German lines in Poland. When 120 Soviet divisions ravaged a thinly held German defensive line and stormed into eastern Poland, the Home Army knew that it was now or never. As members of the Home Army heard explosions and gunfire in the distance on the 1st of August 1944, they launched their own major action against the German occupiers. At 5 p.m., Polish resistance cells rose up across the city and instigated open conflict with the Germans in the streets of Warsaw. Initial attacks were sporadic and German countermeasures were effective, which meant many of the resistance assaults were unsuccessful in capturing their strategic object objectives on the first day. However, by the fourth day of the uprising, the Poles were able to capture a majority of the city, with the exceptions being a few major German strongholds. Despite a few hitches, the Polish army had actually pulled it off, and the German army was forced to regroup and reevaluate their plans in Warsaw. But this is where the story of the Home Army takes a dark turn. The Home Army had planned for their actions to hold the city for a few days, a week at most, until the Soviets reached the city. Then, they'd shake hands with the Soviet troops, the Soviets would honor their sovereignty, get a bite to eat in Warsaw, and then move onward toward Berlin. However, this would never take place. Stalin still did not like the Polish. They were a thorn in his side since 1919. He knew that if these pesky Polish nationalists were able to stick around, so would the thorn in his side. There is no formal documentation of Stalin's intentions when the Soviets approached Warsaw, but history tells the story like this. Soviet troops neared Warsaw and saw the fighting going on there. German artillery was leveling the city, and under-equipped Poles were assaulting German tanks in the streets. And then... 
the Soviet advance abruptly stopped, just outside the city limits of Warsaw. It would not continue until the uprising was crushed months later. When the Germans realized that the Soviets weren't going to participate in the fighting, they doubled down on Warsaw. Not being able to tell combatants from non-combatants, they began exterminating Polish families en masse, going house to house and gunning down Polish civilians regardless of age or gender, hoping it would break the will of the Polish resistance. Unfortunately for the Germans, it only strengthened their resolve. When the Poles came to terms with the betrayal of the Soviets, they dug into the streets of Warsaw, erecting enormous barricades and fortifying entire neighborhoods, fighting valiantly against continued German assaults. For the entire month of August in 1944, the Polish were able to hold on to large segments of Warsaw, including the city center and the old town, both important symbolic sections of the city, but their lack of provisions and ammunition made their war against the Germans a doomed affair without Soviet support. In the first week of September, they abandoned Old Town in the night, retreating through the sewers to stronger positions. In September, the home army continued to sustain massive casualties as the Germans pressed their attack. Street by street, they lost ground day after day until only a few streets of barricaded resistance remained by the last week of September, and Polish ambassadors pleaded with Stalin to help, while no help came. On the 2nd of October, the few remaining home army soldiers surrendered. The remaining civilians in the city were shipped out of Warsaw, many finding themselves in strange, cramped camps deep inside Central Europe that they would never leave. As the trains full of Polish civilians left Warsaw and headed for Central Europe, the Poles watched as the Germans began systematically leveling whole city blocks with the intention of destroying the entire city. This demolition would continue until Stalin finally gave the orders to liberate Warsaw in January of 1945, which by then could hardly even be considered a shell of its former self. Over 85% of the city had been destroyed. Stalin's orders not to assist the Home Army have long been debated by historians. Some say that the Home Army was at fault for not coordinating their attack with the Soviet assault, or that Stalin's armies were simply too far away to assist in the battle. However, the fact remains that the Soviets camped outside Warsaw for months while the Home Army fought tooth and nail against the Germans, and many historians believe that this tactic was intended to ensure the Polish nationalists were purged before the Soviets took control of Poland, and if the Germans did it, then Stalin wouldn't have to worry about it. The bonus was that if the Soviets were lucky, the Home Army would take a few thousand Germans to the grave with them. In any case, the Warsaw Uprising is one of the most tragic stories to come out of the war. Poland would descend behind the Iron Curtain as the Soviets continued their advance on toward Berlin, as 1945 dawned over the planet. As the Germans and Italians reeled in Italy, France, and Poland, Japan wasn't faring much better in the Pacific. For starters, Japanese forces were stretched extremely thin. Seven years of warfare had taken a massive and non-replenishable toll on the Japanese military, and what forces they had left were tied up on multiple fronts, fighting the Americans, Australians, New Zealanders, Chinese, British, and other allies across the Pacific. In June, Allied forces captured the strategic islands of Guam, Marianas, Palau, and a few others that held territory that could support airfields, putting Allied bombers within striking distance of Tokyo. 
They wasted no time. By August 1944, airfields had been constructed on various islands, and Allied B-52s were dropping bombs on the Japanese mainland. The Japanese were forced to respond. They did so by sending a naval attack force on a collision course with one of the main U.S. fleets off the coast of the Philippines. Sending a large air attack at the fleet, the Japanese were met with heavy and coordinated anti-aircraft fire, followed by extensive barrages against their fleets. In the midst of this, the Japanese ships were hit with torpedoes fired by American submarines, heavily damaging numerous Japanese ships, including sinking two of their three vital aircraft carriers. After only two days of fighting, the Japanese turned tail and ran. In the battle, they'd lost 90% of their air power, the losses of which were completely irreplaceable. But in one desperate final push, the Japanese assembled one last massive fleet, complete with four aircraft carriers, nine battleships, 14 heavy cruisers, seven light cruisers, and 35 smaller warships. It was a culmination of all the power the Japanese Navy had left and they sent it all hurtling at the American forces. But it simply wasn't enough, and the attack was a massive blunder for the Japanese. The Americans were able to respond with eight heavy aircraft carriers, nine light aircraft carriers, 12 battleships, 24 cruisers, 116 destroyers and destroyer escorts, and dozens of smaller patrol boats and submarines. In a ferocious three-day battle in October of 1944, known as the Battle of Lady Gulf, the American fleet virtually annihilated what remained of the Japanese Navy, including heavily damaging the, the Yamato, the largest battleship ever built up to that point. Japan would never recover these losses. The destruction of the Japanese fleet opened the way for the Allies to stage the long-awaited land invasion of the Philippines, which they began in December of 1944. Simultaneously, the Allies launched a large-scale operation in Burma with the intention of driving the Japanese out for good. These two attacks sent the Japanese military into a full-blown panic, and the orders then were given for all Japanese soldiers to fight to the death. No retreat. With the Philippines falling and Burma almost completely under control, in February of 1945, the Allies targeted their last two major objectives before the attack on the Japanese mainland, the islands of Iwo Jima and Okinawa. Back in France, after the successful D-Day landings in June, the Allies had launched a second invasion of France from the south, nicknamed Operation Dra Dragoon, which had been massively successful as the Germans were focusing most of their spam man spare manpower in the north. Days after the Dragoon landings, the fresh French resistance launched a huge uprising inside Paris, liberating it on August 19, 1944, after four years of German occupation. Seeing the writing on the wall, many German commanders ordered their troops to retreat, despite Hitler's orders to fight to the last man, and the German lines in France collapsed. By September, the Allies were closing in on the German border, but the success of the invasion could be called into question by mid-fall. The biggest obstacle before the continuation of the invasion was the Rhine River, which stretched from Switzerland to the Netherlands. It was an enormous geographic barrier that worked in Hitler's favor. Most major bridgeheads across the German side of the river were heavily defended, and those that were not heavily defended were destroyed by the Germans. The Allies needed a way to circumvent the German defenses, and in their search for such a path, they remembered what the Germans had done to the French in both the First and Second World Wars go through the defenses, go around the defenses through the Low Countries, Belgium and the Netherlands. Though the Germans had occupied both nations 
in the early days of the war, they had not established heavy defenses in either, as the fall of France had meant that Hitler decided to focus his fortification efforts on the Atlantic Wall rather than prepare for a hypothetical future attack from Allied forces already inside France. The Allies decided that advancing through the Low Countries was their best bet to establish the base of operations for a major offensive into Germany. Their primary target was the city of Arnhem, dead center of the Netherlands. Allied commanders had seen the efficiency of the German war machine and knew that the Germans were growing increasingly desperate. To reach Arnhem, they would, they would have to capture a series of strategic towns and cross nine consecutive bridges, all accomplished assuming the Germans would not destroy all of those bridges. Though the Allies did have the supplies and the engineers to construct makeshift bridges, doing so cost valuable time that they did not want to waste. Instead of a frontal assault, the Allies opted instead to mount an airborne attack, because doing so meant that they could attack a number of German positions at once, surprising them and keeping them from forming a cohesive defensive line while their positions were overwhelmed. Then, troops from the south, already hanging out in France, would advance up the road and reinforce the paratroopers. It was a similar tactic to the German Blitzkrieg that had been so effective during the invasions of France and Russia, though the Germans were not accustomed to the use of paratroopers quite yet. The Allies assembled three divisions of paratroopers along with an independent brigade of Polish fighters who had evacuated Poland back in 1939. The ultimate goal was to advance deep into the, ne the Netherlands, held by the Germans, using a single road that cut through the center of the German lines. The capture of the road would cut off a significant number of German troops in the area and weaken the German hold on the region. The capture of Arnhem would also provide the Allies with a vital foothold from which they could launch their final push into Germany. The stage was set, and the attack would be called Operation Market Garden. On September 17, 1944, thousands of Allied troops were dropped on numerous landing zones deep in German territory, primarily near the cities of Eindhoven in the south, Nijmegen in the, south, in the center, and Arnhem in the north. Having learned from the debacle on D-Day, the Allied paratroopers actually made very successful and concentrated landings, staying in their landing zone and establishing perimeters. Troops began making a solid advance near Arnhem, and troops captured a number of vital towns near Nijmegen. And then, disaster. In the south, the German troops were able to halt the Allied advance by blowing up a series of vital bridges, crossing a canal that barred the land forces advancing from the south from continuing to the targeted cities in the north, where paratroopers were expecting their timely arrival. While the bridges could be reconstructed, it would cost valuable time. Every minute the ground forces were held back was another minute the paratroopers would have to hold their own against overwhelming odds. And then... Only the worst fears of the Allies were realized. An Allied glider crashed behind German lines, and it was carrying the plans of the entire operation, which the Germans captured. Immediately, German troops began moving to reinforce Arnhem and Nijmegen. Though the first few days of fighting went rather smoothly for the Allies, once the Germans managed to coordinate their attacks, the Allies became bogged down with staunch resistance. Allied troops further north at Arnhem became cut off, barricading themselves inside residential districts and preparing for the worst. Despite the resistance, the Allies were able to capture Eindhoven and advance northward to Nijmegen, where coordinated German resistance kept them at bay for several more precious days. All the while, the paratroopers inside Arnhem were losing more and more men by the day and running low on supplies and ammunition. Finally, on the eighth day of the operation, the Allies were able to reach the river near Arnhem, but it was too late. 
the paratroopers had surrendered en masse, and only one in ten men sent into Arnhem was able to make it back across the river to rejoin the Allied forces on the other side. Arnhem would remain in German hands for the time. Operation Market Garden, though having accomplished some of the tasks intended, had been a failure, and Allied losses had been horrific. Over 15,000 Allied troops were killed, captured, or missing, and they had been unable to establish the foothold in the Netherlands they wanted, nor cross north of the Rhine River, which was their original objective. The Germans had destroyed virtually every bridge along the Rhine, setting the Allies back months. They would be spending the winter south of the Rhine, and would need to launch wider land attacks in the Netherlands in order to liberate it from Germany, while the Soviet Union continued their onslaught into Central Europe. By January of 1945, the Red Army was advancing on average 25 miles a day into German territory. Before the end of the month, they'd captured the Baltic states and were moving into East Prussia. The Red Army then advanced into Hungary, capturing Budapest in February. The Germans attempted their final major counterattack, called Operation Spring Awakening, meant to prevent the Soviets from reaching Vienna on the 6th of March, but within 10 days, it had failed. At the end of March, Soviets entered Austria, and Vienna fell mid-April. Stalin's war machine was unstoppable. The Western Allies scrambled to make similar gains as the Soviet Union. Well aware of Stalin's military might, the Western Allies were hoping to reach Berlin before him, as distrust was growing between Stalin and the Western leaders. Frustrated by the lack of progress after the failure of Market Garden, Allied leaders piled on the pressure to get across the Rhine as soon as possible. They were surprised, however, when the Germans mounted a massive counterattack in December of 1944, which blew a hole in the Allied lines. While the advance was halted, it left a gaping crack in the Allied lines they called the Bulge, and a fierce winter fight was waged over the area, finally ending in mid-January 1945, called the Battle of the Bulge. In March, the Western Allies were finally able to make it across the Rhine on their way to Berlin. Hitler's hold on Europe disintegrated as, a, as April began. While Mussolini technically had a hold on northern Italy, even as a civil war raged in the country, a massive Allied advance broke through the Axis lines mid-month and the resistance crumbled. Allied forces in the west shattered German resistance, passing through the heavily industrialized zones in west, uh, west of Berlin. Soviet forces were on the outskirts of Berlin by April 16th and smashed their way into the city in the weeks following. On April 30th, Soviet troops stormed the Reichstag, which had not been in use since it burned in 1933, as Hitler had no use for a legislature, and German troops engaged the Soviets in fierce room-to-room -room fighting. By the end of the day, Soviet troops raised a Red Army flag over the Reichstag. With only his wife of a single day, Eva Braun, and a few of his highest-ranking highest officials, Hitler committed suicide in his private bunker relinquishing control of his fallen Nazi nation to one of his subordinates. But two days later, as the city of Berlin was reduced to rubble, the general staff of the German army calmly walked into the field headquarters of the Red Army a few blocks away from the Reichstag and offered their surrender. The Red Army accepted. The same day, the tattered Axis forces fighting in northern Italy also surrendered. Five days later, German forces fighting the Allies in the West surrendered. 24 hours later, all German military operations ceased, and, per Allied orders, 
German forces were ordered to leave all occupied territory and return to their homes. The war in Europe had come to an end, and at a staggering cost. Many major cities in Germany, the Soviet Union, Poland, and Italy had been destroyed, and tens of millions were dead. Italy was effectively in a state of civil war, and the sudden pullout of German forces from a number of nations such as Greece left them in disarray. To add to this, Stalin and the Western Allies were at odds over how to deal with the situation in Europe and would not be able to effectively start rebuilding for years after the war ended. In addition, as the Allies began crossing into German territory from both the West and the East, they had encountered strange and horrific camps full of emaciated inmates being held in inhumane conditions, but usually abandoned by German guards. The Allies had discovered the ultimate atrocity of the Holocaust, and it would be years until the full extent of the brutality and tragedy was revealed. But all of this would have to wait for now. Even though Germany and Italy had surrendered, there was still a war to fight in the East. Following their vengeful victories in Lady Gulf and the capture of numerous vital territories in the South Pacific, paired with their now incessant bombing of Japanese cities on the mainland, and the increasingly desperate attacks of the Japanese military, including heightened kamikaze and bonsai attacks, the Allies were quickly warming up to the idea that the Japanese were close to their breaking point. What does kamikaze and bonsai mean? These were both military tactics that the Japanese military used during World War II that always ended in suicide, but with the goal being to take as many of the enemy with you as you could. Kamikaze literally means divine wind or spirit wind in Japanese, and was the act of strapping explosives to a rickety plane and flying it directly into an enemy warship, usually incapacitating the ship. This was particularly prevalent in 1945, as the Japanese knew the end was near. A bonsai charge is not a Japanese term, but a name the Allies gave the tactic. The charge generally took place when a Japanese platoon saw that a battle was lost and they charged the enemy with bayonets knowing that they were going to die. Japanese samurai tradition held that the death was more honorable than capture, and this tactic ensured death at the hands of the enemy while killing as many, as many of the enemy as they could. The name Banzai was given to the tactic because of the battle cries shouted by Japanese soldiers when they carried out the charge, which were... Tenoheka Banzai, which meant long, long live the emperor for 10,000 years. Banzai charges had been around since 1942, but in many of the later battles of the war, they became more common as Japanese islands continued to fall to the Allies. The goal of these attacks was to make Allied losses unacceptably high, which could, in theory, stall or reverse their advance, despite their overwhelming numbers. <laughs> Seeing the Japanese grow increasingly desperate, the Allies pressed their attack, their next target being the small island of Iwo Jima, a geographically insignificant but strategically somewhat important blot of dirt several hundred miles south of Japan. It housed two airfields and a number of strong Japanese fortifications and could be yet another jumping off point for the Allies to use in a potential invasion of the Japanese mainland, which some American commanders were starting to suggest with a hint of dread. The Japanese were launching kamikaze attacks from that base, and for that reason, it was a natural next target. Eliminate the source of attacks, and you eliminate a major source of the hurt. The Allies knew that it was going to be a tough fight. The Japanese were being ordered to stand their ground until death, whatever cost. And the resulting losses had been staggering. Kamikaze attacks and bonsai charges were taking their toll on Allied morale, but there was a war to be won, and so in February of 1945, with a foreboding sense of the impending slaughter, the Allied naval force encircled Iwo Jima, and on the 16th of February, 
initiated an extensive artillery barrage of the entire island, virtually destroying most above-ground fortifications and nearly all vegetation. Allied troops believed the bombardment would be enough to subdue the enemy, but unfortunately the Japanese had grown accustomed to such attacks and tunneled deep beneath the surface to outlast the barrage. Though the attack cratered the surface of the island into oblivion, it inflicted minimal casualties on the Japanese defenders and only drove them deeper underground. After three days of bombardment, 450 Allied ships massed off Iwo Jima and began landing operations on the southern beach. Curiously, as American troops disembarked their landing craft on the beach, they were met with an eerie silence as no defenders fired off their guns to meet them. That was until several thousand troops were already on the beach, when machine guns, artillery, and small arms fire opened up on the landing party, inflicting heavy casualties. This was deliberate, as the commander of Iwo Jima, Tadamichi Kuribayashi, did not operate under standard Japanese tactics, and preferred to command his troops with his own instinct, rather than tradition. Despite the gunfire coming from the front and both sides, the Americans were able to get a foothold on the island by the end of the first day. American squadrons were able to get a toehold in the first airfield, one of their first primary, albeit far-fetched, objectives, but it was at a remarkably high cost. Some squadrons had experienced as high as an 80% casualty rate by the end of the first day of fighting. Holland Smith, nicknamed Howlin' Mad Smith, commander of the Marine Corps on the island, remarked after seeing the casual casualty report, I don't know who he is, but the Japanese general running this show is one smart bastard. And he was absolutely right. In the days following the establishment of the beachhead, the Americans would be faced with several major counterattacks they would have to fend off. Clearing the pillboxes dotting the landscape proved to be extremely difficult as the extensive tunnel network linked up to all Japanese fortifications, meaning that any pillbox neutralized could be very quickly repopulated with new defenders as American troops walked past it. The Americans had anticipated bonsai charges but were surprised to advance without encountering a single one. General Kuribayashi, once again favoring his instinct and experience over tradition or high command, viewed the charges as futile and ordered his men to preserve their lives and ammunition, making the attack even more difficult and nerve-wracking for the Americans. Despite this, four days after the initial landing, the Americans were able to take the largest geologic fortification, Mount Suribachi, and raise the American flag over it, capturing one of the most famous photographs of World War II while doing so. Check it out, it's pretty cool. While the capture of Mount Suribachi was a huge morale boost and symbolic victory for the Americans, a large part of the island was still held by the Japanese, who were entrenched deeply in the landscape. One of the airfields was still operational, and a Japanese kamikaze attack severely damaged the USS Saratoga, one of the United States' largest fleet carriers, and sunk a smaller carrier. The Americans would have to slog through another 32 days of brutal fighting against a desperate and determined opponent before the few Japanese units who did not fight to the death would finally surrender. And though they were able to claim victory, it had come at a profound cost. Of the 110,000 U.S. servicemen who embarked on the island or supported from the Navy offshore, over 27,000 of them were listed as casualties, more than 6,000 of which went home in body bags. That's almost a staggering 25% casualty rate, one of the highest of any American-fought battles in the war. The worst part? Turns out, Iwo Jima served minimal strategic importance to the Allies. 
Through the rest of the war, the Allies flew very few missions from the islands, and despite some refuelings, not many planes lifted off from the airfields to fly bombing missions in Japan, as was hoped for. The Japanese had used the airfields to attack Allied ships and planes, sure, but only 11 Allied bombers had been lost to aircraft lifting off from Iwo Jima in the months leading up to the battle, hardly enough to justify the 27,000 casualties lost in the attack. Many leaders of the military scowled at the very mention of Iwo Jima after the war, knowing that they'd sent so many noble men to their deaths for such a measly gain. But not every historian holds the same contempt. In the book The Ghosts of Iwo Jima, written by Captain Robert S. Burrell and published in 2011, Burrell suggests that the high cost of the battle and the widely circulated photograph of the raising of the American flag over Mount Suribachi created a certain reverence for the Marine Corps that was not present before. He suggests that this same reverence embodied the American national spirit and ensured the survival of the Marine Corps for decades, and perhaps even centuries, to come. The Americans licked their wounds and prepared for, the, for their next target, one of the most heavily fortified islands in the Pacific, and their last major target before the possible invasion of mainland Japan, Okinawa. Okinawa held one of the largest airfields in the Pacific, and the Americans were planning to use it as a staging area for their ultimate attack on the home islands. In China, the tide was turning against the Japanese as well. Their previous operation, Operation Ichigo, had been a smashing success, and they hoped to replicate the success with another operation, which they launched in March of 1945. This time, however, all the American-trained Chinese troops who had been bogged down fighting the Japanese in Burma and India in 1944 were flown back into China to fight, and the Japanese optimism quickly turned to horror as their operation disintegrated, and they found themselves on the retreat with Chinese forces swarming the various strongholds in southern China. As a joint attack group of hundreds of Allied warships, literally hundreds, the Americans alone fielded 18 battleships, 27 cruisers, 177 destroyers and destroyer escorts, 39 aircraft carriers, and a whole lot of support ships, and the British sent another 250 ships to help. Like, this was a whole big to-do. This attack group approached Okinawa at the end of March 1945. The Japanese were fully aware that Okinawa was going to fall, and had adjusted their defenses accordingly. This was not a battle they intended to win. Instead, it was a battle they intended to make so costly to the Allies that they would opt for a favorable peace treaty instead of an invasion of mainland Japan. Every dugout was turned into a suicide bunker. Many soldiers were given one extra grenade to use as a suicide blast against an Allied tank. Many native Okinawans were drafted into the army, some as young as 14. Almost every warplane on the island was fitted with explosives and intended to be flown directly into an enemy ship. The island became a fortress of death. Knowing this, the Americans bombed the island into oblivion for 10 days. 10 days. Americans disembarked on the bombed-out island of Okinawa on April 1st, 1945, but once again experienced little resistance initially. They were worried that the Japanese would surprise them with a vicious surprise attack after landing, but no resistance came. Okinawa was a long, skinny island, and the Americans decided to land in the center and expand outward to, outward to both arms, cutting the Japanese defenses in half. Despite encountering pockets of Japanese defenders in the first few days... The American troops swept through the central parts of the island and captured two airfields, suspicious, suspicious at the ease to which they accomplished it. And then, the real fight began. 
The Marines advanced north while the army advanced south, and both groups encountered fierce resistance. The Japanese utilized the mountainous terrain to their advantage, waiting out artillery barrages and bunkers and attacking unsuspecting American troops as they advanced, thinking artillery had knocked out the defenders. Progress in the south was slow, while progress in the north was far more effective. By the end of April, the Americans had taken out the entire northern end of the island and moved their troops to assist in dislodging the stubborn Japanese resistance in the south. It would take them almost two months to see a breakthrough, and it turned the entire defensive Japanese line into a hellscape. The Japanese took those two months to fly over a thousand kamikaze missions at, Allied, at the Allied fleet, costing the Allies dozens of warships and thousands more lives. But the Americans pressed the attack despite the casualties. Every time the Americans made a push, the Japanese would hammer them with, with artillery and suicide attacks. The final breakthrough took 10 full days of continuous night and day fighting before the Japanese line finally broke. And just when it did, a monstrous monsoon blanketed the entire island in torrential rain, turning the battlefield into a muddy soup and rendering most attacks pointless. However, the Japanese had used the cover of the monsoon to abandon many settlements in Okinawa and reinforce their defensive positions. After all, their objective was not to hold any part of the island. It was to kill as many Americans as they could before the island fell. Knowing the end was at hand, the Japanese holed up in their strongest bunkers on the southern tip of the island and fought ferociously for several weeks, creating the worst slaughter of the battle. American casualties mounted to over 50,000, but still, they pressed the attack, only to find the greatest horror as the battle came to an end. Thousands of Japanese soldiers had committed ceremonial suicide, seppuku, instead of be captured. As many as 4,000 soldiers were found dead in a single tunnel on the southern tip of the island, the last bastion of resistance. Also found among them were dead civilians from the island, many of whom were unarmed and had been used as human shields. It was not until, the, until June 21st that the last few defenders who had not committed suicide or been killed surrendered, ending an 82-day-long battle, the death toll of which was catastrophic. Over 20,000 American servicemen were dead, the highest death toll of any single battle on the Pacific the Americans had fought yet. Tens of thousands more were wounded. In contrast, the Japanese had suffered over 100,000 dead, 30,000 of which were conscripted Okinawans who had never intended to fight in the war. It was an unspeakably high number of casualties, and the U.S. High Command was forced to pause their plans for an invasion of the Japanese homeland. The Japanese had resorted to tactics so savage, so barbaric, and so destructive on Okinawa that military officials feared what they would implement if an invasion of the Japanese home islands were to ever take place. Human shields, bonsai charges, suicide bombers, kamikazes, child soldiers, these had all contributed to the abject slaughter on Okinawa, and it was just a tiny speck of land in the Pacific compared to the home islands the U.S. High Command began looking for alternative ways to end the war. But Japan was still having a very bad time in the Pacific. They were losing hundreds of miles of territory in China, and the Australian forces had launched an attack on the island of Borneo, thinning their ranks even further. American planes were using Okinawa to bomb Japanese cities, including a firebombing of Tokyo which resulted in thousands of civilian lives lost, a war crime. In addition, 
Japanese scouts in Manchuria were reporting massive buildups of Soviet forces on the northern border, indicating an imminent assault, which would break the peace that the Soviets and Japan had somehow managed to negotiate up to this point. Some Japanese government advocates had known since 1943 that they could not win a war against the United States, the British Empire, and China, and they had been trying to get Emperor Hirohito to begin the peace process since then, but Hirohito could not stomach the idea of his war being a stain on his legacy. And the Japanese high command were overzealous in their belief that the Japanese war machine could be victorious. Even so, as the darkness closed in around them, even Hirohito began shaking in his boots. And then, boom. On August 6th, 1945, the Japanese coastal city of Hiroshima was hit with a fireball that reached high into the sky, an explosion that the world had never seen. Over 100,000 people were vaporized in an instant, and the city was leveled. The United States had dropped the pinnacle of the top-secret Manhattan Project, the atomic bomb, nicknamed Little Boy, on the city. Three days later, a second bomb, nicknamed the Fat Man, was dropped on Nagasaki. Between 40,000 and 80,000 more lives were lost. In Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the vast majority of those killed were civilians. In the days after both blasts, the survivors suffered, suffered extreme radiation sickness and the cities virtually burned to the ground. The Japanese commanders were in shock. On the same day as the bombing of Nagasaki, Soviet troops flooded into Manchuria, devastating the weak Japanese lines and sweeping through the territory at a rate of hundreds of miles a day, a declaration of war coming only minutes before troops crossed into the territory. The thin Japanese defenses crumbled, and within days, the Soviets were nearly into North Korea. Facing certain annihilation at the hands of the new atomic weapons, a Soviet invasion to the Northwest, a weakening grip in their few Pacific holdings, on August 15th, 1945, Emperor Hirohito issued his unconditional surrender to the Allied forces. Most fighting across the Pacific ceased in the days following and American forces quietly occupied Japan as the guns fell silent. For the first time in years, the world was quiet. The Second World War, the largest and deadliest conflict the world had ever known, was over. Mussolini and Hitler were dead, their countries destroyed, and Hirohito retreated into obscurity. The Allies convened to figure out what to do with the mess of a world they'd fought for. Civil wars were breaking out across the globe as countries who had been occupied found themselves deeply divided on how to govern themselves. The war between the nationalists and communists resumed after a month of peace in China. Greece descended into domestic conflict. Vietnam went to war with itself. Tensions rose in Korea, where the Soviet Union created a communist northern territory and the United States established a democratic capitalist southern territory. The Soviet Union also occupied nearly every country east of Germany, closing most roads in or out of them in the next few years, effectively establishing the Iron Curtain. Even though the war was over and the great enemies of democracy were defeated, it was as if it had done very little to stabilize the planet. But even so, 
the world breathed a sigh of relief. The worst part of it had passed. Troops around the world were sent home to families who had worried for years, but millions of families would leave an empty seat at the table. Seventy million people had died as a direct result of the war, leaving many nations in shambles, and even the Allies blaming each other for the disaster. The tensions present as the fighting came to a close would only inflame as the years passed, igniting powder kegs in Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Angola, Egypt, Israel, Algeria, Congo, Cuba, Guatemala, Yemen, Ethiopia. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, we did it. We finished World War II. Oh, man. That was really something. I am so glad that this episode is finally out there. That was quite a journey. I am going to do one last episode to kind of talk about the aftermath of World War II and, uh, you know, what went on with the creation of the United Nations and the beginning of the Cold War, the the descending of the Iron Curtain, uh, things like that. I I am going to do one more episode about that. And then after that, I'm going to cut short the Conflict of Nations series I initially wanted to do, and I'm going to instead opt to continue the kind of episodes I did before I started Conflict of Nations, which is just, I choose a topic, I do an episode, I move on to the next topic, because I bit off way more than I could do with this with, with this uh, with this series, and uh, I was not anticipating it to be as much as it turned out to be. But I thank all of you for listening for as long as you have. If you made it to the end of this episode, that's almost two, holy, two hours, two hours of content. Remember, if you enjoy the podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let me drop a five-star review. Let me know that you're enjoying what you're hearing and tell your friends about the show. This is a long series and there's a lot of content here. Um, And I just want to thank you all for listening up to this point. All right. With all that said, I'm going to call it a night. It's been a long one. I'll catch you all with the next episode. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your night.